This is the Bible I bring when I preach. And it's kind of falling apart a little bit. I could never get rid of it, though, because they got too many notes in it. And I think it was uh, Joe Walsh had a song about him being an analog man in a digital world. I'm kind of an old school guy in a technical world. So I'm, I'm just going on the Bible today. I don't have fancy PowerPoint. I hope that's okay. We have Bibles in the back. If you'd like to grab one and follow along, I really encourage you to do that. When I was really getting, starting to really take off in my Christian life and I went to this church in Dinah, Minnesota called Grace Church. And I, that was my first edition of my study Bible. I remember sitting up in the balcony. I love sitting in the balcony. I'd open up my study Bible, and i just go, okay, preacher, bring it on. What do you got? i just sit back and kind of try to drink it all in. And uh, I, I hope that that's what we can do today. So finding my text here. We're going to be looking at First Peter. Um, Pastor Sean was we were going through First Peter. And and we took a long break. So we had Advent stuff, and then we had uh, some sermons on Ephesians. Now we're back to first to first Peter. So, but before we look into it, as you're flipping there, I got some some questions. Um, I wonder, like in Canmore, I wonder what percentage of Bible believing, gospel embracing Christians there are here. I, I was thinking about that this weekend. I bet it's for sure less than five percent, and I, I bet it's more like like one to two percent. I mean, church attendance is part of that picture, obviously, but there's, I think it's pretty small. I don't know if you guys agree with me or not, but um, and if that's the case, there could be a lot of people in our our, our lives that um, that we might be the only Christian that they even know, to come in contact with, whether it's a, a work or a teams or a neighborhood things like that. That's a good chance that you might be the only Christian that they know. And I don't know if that tugs on your heart at all. I mean, that's a pretty big responsibility to think about it. If we represent Jesus to the people, we might be one of the few representations that they have. Um, But then think about the reality of of eternity and going into a Christless eternity. That that, that should, should grip our hearts. Does it grip your heart? Early in my ministry, I gotta confess, it seemed like that really did grip me. But I, I wonder if I've become a little complacent in that, and and not see people the way the way God sees them, and in need of a, of a savior. I don't know. So we're going back to First Peter, as I said, and and both of Peter's letters are really helpful for us because they're they're really pragmatic, they're very practical, but the situation that Peter's audience was in was very similar to our situation. The Roman Empire persecution hadn't really kicked in yet, but there was a lot of localized, just, um, I don't know, persecution, um, kind of a, it was kind of a semi-hostile environment. And that's the, the topic for my, my sermon today. Like I said, I don't have it on the blank screen, sorry about that, but I wanted to look at staying true to Christ and his mission in a semi-hostile environment. And that's kind of what we live in, isn't it? I think it's kind of semi-hostile. It's probably going to change, not for the better, but that's where we find ourselves. You know, Peter's letters are great. Like, um, I'm sure we, Sean told us that, like, Paul's letters, we just got done going through Ephesians. He spends three chapters just telling us the gloriousness of the gospel, what it is, and expounding on the theology. And then he says, okay, since that's true, here's three chapters to tell you what you should do in response to it. 
But we know from the Gospels that Peter was a man of action. And so in Peter's letters, he spends about a quarter, maybe a half a chapter about the gloriousness of the Gospel, and he gets right into it. Okay, now that's true. So this is what we should do. This is how it applies to our lives. So like I said, it's a very practical book. So since we haven't looked at First Peter in a while, let me just give you a little bit of context again. Um, it's highly relevant to us, like I said, because there's a lot of similarities. It's written to the Asia Minor kind of area. It's the same area, if you remember in Acts, where Paul wanted to go there and share the gospel, but it says in Acts, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit him. But in the first verse, first chapter of First Peter, he says it's writing to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and it's all in the northwest quadrant of, of Asia Minor. So God didn't use Paul to reach those people, but he reached his people. That's God's heart. He reaches people. So Peter is writing out to this largely Gentile audience to tell them how to live the life out, live, live the life of Christ out in your life. So let me read, read the text. It's kind of long. We're going to read from verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 3, to the end. It says this, And who is there to harm you if you prove, prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. The sanctified Christ is Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it, so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient, but the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. That's a long, a big chunk there. We're going to look at as much of that as we can today. So um, I asked another question. What kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church are we? I read this week about a church, actually a ministry, planting a series of churches, and they want to create churches that the unchurched people um, love. I think that's highly commendable. Um, but G and Jesus said he came to seek and save that which is lost. So, uh, but, but I don't know. I mean, what, one of the athletes that I meet with uh, pretty regularly, he had moved out here from Ontario, a uh, bobsled guy, and he was sharing his church shopping with his wife, his new wife. And he wasn't church hopping. Some people hop from one church to the next. He wanted a place where he could plant, be a part of the family, and, and, and do it. So he was shopping for the right church. And so um, every week, he'd kind of give me an update. And so one week, I asked, well, how, how did he go to church last Sunday? He said, the worship was awesome. I don't think it's as good as Arnie's worship. It was pretty good today, you guys. But um, then he goes, the preaching? And then he goes, that's yeah, okay. That's good. It's okay. <laughs> Maybe that's what you'll be thinking about today's sermon. I don't know. But then he said, but nobody talked to us. And I said, really? He said, yeah, we, we kind of stood up there in the back, just waiting, giving people a chance, and no one talked to us. I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. 
Hopefully, we're not a church like that. <laughs> if there's people you haven't met yet, make sure you meet people here, because sometimes that happens. But again, what kind of church do you want to be? You know, in our community, some people, I think, will love us because they see our lives, and they're drawn to, to, to Jesus if their hearts are open to him. And they'll see our good works, the stuff that we're doing, like we just mentioned all the uh, announcements this morning. But other people will be maybe even repelled by those good works and repelled by the moral standards that we take in our lives just because they're not open to Jesus. And that's the kind of the way it is. And the same world that hated Jesus um, will also uh, reject those that follow him just because that's the choices that they've made. But Jesus did say in the Sermon on the Mount, so let your light shine before others that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then just in the chapter before this, we read in uh, 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. So Peter's telling us again, verse 13. If you've got your Bible, you can see that. And he asks kind of a rhetorical question. Who is there to harm you if you are for good? And the answer there is, is no one. I've always been kind of intrigued by that word zealous. If you prove zealous for what is good, it's the Greek word zealous. And in English, we interpret it actually with two English words, jealous and zealous. But it's just one Greek word for both of those English words, zealous. And it's kind of like, I don't know, maybe English, they're somewhat similar because we can be jealous to protect God's reputation. And, and zealous for good work, they both involve kind of an emotional, ardent striving to do something well and go after it. And that's kind of what we're told to do here, you know, to be ardent, fully engaged, and emotionally committed to, to, to doing good work, to do, doing good stuff. It's a great description of what we should be doing. I want to tell a story, and I hesitate to tell this, because I don't want to make myself look better than I am, because I'm so far from living up to this really because I know there's someone even in our own church that received the volunteer of the year award for Canmore so but they put me to shame but you see in verse 16 and 17 before I get to my story keep a good conscience but it also says make sure you don't do bad I mean it could be one thing to not even be doing good works but it's possible to receive verse 16 and 17 um, to keep a good conscience for it's better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right oh I got the wrong Anyway, we should never suffer for doing wrong. But I know I'm capable of it. In the heat of the moment, um, if you're angry, we can let something go. And to me, that just can, sh can shock me a little bit because I never, never want to defame God's reputation in any way. But we're all capable of doing it, I think. And so we need to really be on guard. Because that's what Peter's saying here. You know, always have a good conscience. If you're doing good, and really avoid the bad. Because there's no way that we want to ever defame God's name. And in this day and age, we can't escape it, what we do, because there's security cameras everywhere. <laughs> you know, Think about that. Even on the streets and stuff, we don't even notice it, but they're, they're watching us. People have their phones. They're taking their phones. And even our, our social media posts and emails are probably recorded for all time. And so we need to kind of watch our lives and make sure we don't get caught up in the moment and defame God's name in any way. But back in my story. Okay, so a teammate of mine in uh, Ski Mountaineering, we had teamed up at a, at a world championship uh, in the two-person race. So we were doing a lot of training together and we got to know him. And, and um, 
Anyway, he made a, a Facebook post that was real negative on Christians. I was reading this, I'm just going, man, what are you saying? And then at the very end, he said, um, except for Steve Sellers, he does some good. <laughs> I thought, okay, well, the first thing, I'm probably the only Christian this guy even knows. And if he had known any other Christians, he probably wouldn't have said the rant in the first place. But I think that's true. Like I said before, sometimes we might be the only Christian that people know. Well, verse 13 asks us the question. It's rhetorical. Who will harm us? And the answer, the unspoken answer, for the most part, is no. But there will be some people that will. And so verse 14 says, even if you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, we're blessed. We'll come back to suffering in just a minute here. But I want to look at what it means to do, to, what it means to share your faith in a semi-hostile environment. Because we want to do that. We want to share the goodness of God and what he's done in our lives. There have been a couple people in our congregation that have told me how they, they use, I term the term, use the term salty speech. Remember the old Lay's potato chip commercial? Maybe you guys are old like me. You can't eat just one. You know, you can't eat just one Lay's potato chip because it's the salt. And so a couple people in church just said, yeah, I'll be talking about um, what we did on the weekend. And I mentioned that I went to church. And they're kind of looking for a response or kind of an answer. And if, if God's open, opening their hearts a little bit to him, they'll often kind of want another, more information, so they might pursue that. And so we can learn to kind of salt our speech in this way, kind of just salty a little bit. And there's another time when I was driving with my old ski rep to do a clinic somewhere, and, and uh, there's a, a line that came on the radio. One of God or one of us, uh, a stranger just trying to find his way home. And I asked my friend, what do you think they're saying? And then for the next hour, we talked about God. And it's kind of, uh, he, his heart was open. It was kind of fun to do that. That's another example of using salty speech. And, and we can do that. But verse 15 gives us some, some insight how to share Christ. And the first one is to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. You might wonder what that has to do with sharing the gospel. But that's the preparation phase, to sanctify Christ. And the Greek word there is hagiasta, which means just make holy. To make something holy is to kind of set it apart and make it special. And there's a couple of ways that we make Christ holy in our hearts. The first one is we want to match up our, our righteousness with his holiness and his righteousness. Look, ask God, is there anything in my life that I need to confess that's keeping me from, from knowing you? There was a, an occasion where this hockey player I knew was a Christian. He wanted to reach his team for Christ, but he had an anger problem. It was manifested on the ice and off the ice. And so this guy, like, he was quiet about his witness because his teammates had seen him blow up too many times. And he knew that he just... The words didn't match up with the actions. And so in our lives, same thing. That's how we make Christ holy. We sanctify Christ holy in our hearts, line up our righteousness as best we can with God's power and strength to his righteousness. And secondly, um, to make um, Christ Lord in our hearts and sanctify him that way is to be obedient to what he's telling us to do. God gives each one of us an assignment. The assignment can be large, like like our career direction, but often it's just small assignments through the day. Like, do this righteous deed or talk to this person. And when we've sanctified Christ as Lord in our hearts, the answer is always yes. It's never, oh, let's debate this for a while. No, he gives us an assignment and we faithfully carry it out because we sanctified him, made him Lord in our hearts. 
Secondly, we're told here um, to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. The word defense here is apologia. Kind of a Greek geek today, sorry about that. But apologia, it's where we get the word apologetics. Have you heard that word, apologetics? That's the, the formal study of making a defense for the gospel. And there are some big-time guys that, that write books like R.C. Sproul and Josh McDowell, and they kind of show you how to make an argument and defend the faith. And that intimidates some people because we haven't read our apologetic books, we haven't gone to apologetic school, and I think I could never make a stand for Christ because I don't have all the answers. But the other sense of that word apologia is simply to give an answer for yourself. And we all can do that. You know, um, we've all got a story. I think Peter has that part of it in mind. You know, um, there have been some of our athletes on the national team, Olympic level, that, that I've worked with, and I've been amazed how God, well, how they were allowed to tell their God story. And, you know, now, you could be saying, well, nowadays, you know, for sure, when they start talking about God, the microphone just get yanked away, whether it's CBC or CTV. But even 25 years ago, that was the case. They start talking about religious stuff, man, the microphone. But there have been a couple occasions, or one, one occasion, they were doing this athlete's uh, personal profile the summer before the Winter Olympics. And they told her, like, man, I kept asking you about my faith. That's kind of weird. And, she's, and, and this person said, on two occasions, the producer said, this is so interesting. And so it was really a great witness. Another time, um, CTV recently was interviewing one of, one of the athletes, and, and they had crashed and had a really hard thing happen. But he kind of told how he was holding on to his hope because of his relationship with God. It was just amazing. But the reason for that is because they were just telling their stories. They weren't, they weren't preaching. They weren't proselytizing. They were just kind of telling their stories. And and, and with our top-level athletes, they actually go through media training. And I've kind of done some of my own media training, said, you know, don't just try to share your faith this way. It might come out kind of sideways. But just tell a story about maybe how God helped you with your comeback and your, your setbacks or, or, or whatever. Um, but that's often the way it is. The people will listen because we're telling a story. And each one of us, we have a story, don't we? Back in the days, um, with athletes in action and my involvement with them, I take a lot of summer summer tours. And before we leave training camp, we take we teach our guys to do their three minute testimony. And it's kind of canned, admittedly, but we wouldn't leave training camp until they had their three minute testimony down. And one year, I got the privilege to go. Uh, I was the team discipler um, with a basketball team down in New Zealand, and we it was we had a really good team. We had some really top NCAA guys there, and at halftime. The home team, they'd go to the locker room and they'd rest. But our guys would do this big slam dunk competition, or not competition, this demonstration. And as a team discipler, I did not take part in that because we didn't take a trampoline along with us. <laughs> That's what I would have needed to get up there. But anyway, there were a couple of occasions where we had a 40-point lead and they, they threw me in the game. One time the coach goes, Sellers, the, the, the minutes were winding down. He goes, Sellers, go out to the van and grab a uniform. I'm like, huh? Yeah, go get a uniform. And so the guys were stalling, they're tying their shoes, and kind of waiting so I could get through. And the shorts came down below my knees. I looked like a clown. <laughs> but uh, then they inbounded it to me. I deked out my guy and shot, and I missed it. <laughs> but anyway, 
So we'd do our slam dunk thing to get the attention of the crowd, and then we'd all line up at um, center court, and I, as the team disciple, I would assign the guy, okay, you're doing your testimony tonight, and you're doing your testimony, and you're doing the gospel presentation, and the guys would share their story. But the value of their testimony, that was good, but the real value came in our travels. We'd be going on planes and sometimes have a meal with the, the home team after the game, and guys were sharing their stories. It wasn't the official one, but it was part of it. And that was the power of their stories, is those interactions that, that they did. And that's what we can do as well. That's a Paul to get for us, making the defense for the hope that lies within us by telling our story. Part of that is listening to other people's story too. I'm taking some classes now on, on, on spiritual care, and they make a distinction between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is when you have pity. You feel sorry for somebody. But they say that empathy is when you really get down alongside them, kind of feel their pain, and, and, and walk them through their pain. That's more em empathy. And I just think that's listening to their story and hearing their story and, and, and then sharing that with them. And then sharing our story as we've listened to their story. You know, through my life, um, I think my two biggest prayer requests, if I could look back and record all my prayers, the number one prayer request is, God, please give me a love for you. Do you ever pray that way? Because I know my love is so weak, and I need the Holy Spirit to strengthen my love for, for God. And my number two prayer request is often then, immediately after that, and please give me a love for people. Because I know that Stu Sellers is a selfish guy. He can become very self-centered and, and not love people like he should. I know that. So I pray, ask God, Holy Spirit, please come give me more of a love for people. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Market Mall in Calgary. And I don't know if you do this, but I, I found myself, and I realized I do this all the time, making judgments about people. Fat person, skinny person, athletic person, good-looking person, cute kid. It's just one by one, bam, 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 they kept coming to me. I thought, what am I doing? Turn that off. And I said, I'm just going to try to have silence in my brain and let God show me that person through his eyes. And it's so interesting to do that, to see people that way. So I'm going to try not to do the former anymore and make labels of people, but just see people the way God sees people. And hopefully I'll get a chance to share my story. So next I want to talk about suffering. We see this in verses 14 and verses 17. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. And then in verse 17, um, for it is better, even if God should will it, that you should suffer. I mean, isn't that a great calling card for the gospel? Hey, come to Jesus. You're going to suffer. <laughs> That's kind of how it is. And, and, uh, the first, chap, first verse of the next chapter sums up what we just looked at in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. That's part of the Christian life, the suffering. Not a positive thing, but it's a reality thing. Earlier I asked, what kind of church do you want to be in? I brought this book with me. It's called Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. And do you know what the word sovereignty means when we refer to God? It means that he's in control. God is sovereign, so he, he causes all things to work according to his plan and his purpose. And so you see that the word suffering and the word sovereignty together, a lot of Christians have a hard time with that. How do you reconcile these two concepts? And this book was the result of an entire conference 
trying to tackle that, that very question. And when I, th- when I think about the kind of church I want to be a part of, I want to be able to wrestle with some of those issues and, and try to understand God in a more deeper way and be willing to let him change some of the, my preconceived notions of who he is. I want to read a quote from this book. And I semi-apologize for not having it up on the screen. But let me just read you this quote from a guy named John Piper. Since the church has not been spending its energy to go deep with the unfathomable God of the Bible, against the overwhelming weight and seriousness of the Bible, much of the church is choosing to become more light and shallow and entertainment-oriented, and therefore successful in its irrelevance to massive suffering and evil. The popular God of fun church is simply too small and too affable to hold a hurricane in his hand or 25,000 people dying in an earthquake or thousands of people being killed and displaced in, in the Ukraine or the, the clock ticking to doomsday closer than it's ever been in the history of, of the world. These are things that we're dealing with these days and there's great suffering going on in the world today. Piper goes on to say the biblical categories of God's sovereignty they lay like landmines in the pages of the Bible waiting for someone to seriously open the book. They don't kill, but they do explode trivial notions of the Almighty. So we have biblical landmines that we can step on that can blow up our world some ways. But as a church, are we willing to go there and not just be light and shallow in our, in our view of God and the world and his, his purposes and his plans? I had a new way of doing some sermon prep this week. Sitting in the Canada Olympic Park this week, what we call Winsport, and uh, I told the guys meeting with, I say, I got to give him credit. This is so good. His name is Orion. I said, Orion, I'm preaching on this passage. Can you read it right now and, and just tell me what you see? What did God tell you? So you read it, and he said, the first thing I thought of was Daniel. And I thought, yeah, Daniel. That is so good. Because what did Daniel do? He did what was righteous. He didn't do anything wrong, and, and yet they tried to get him, and so they made an edict, you can only pray to our Persian king. But Daniel refused to go along with that. He did the righteous thing. He prayed still three times a day, because that was obedience to God. What what that do to him? Ended up in the lion's den. Well, you guys know the story. God closed the mouths of the lions, and they were hungry lions. We know that because then they took the ones that put them there, and their families, unfortunately, too. And they were gone, eaten up before they even hit the floor. So they were hungry lions. But God was with Daniel in the midst of his suffering. He did righteous. He did right. And God protected him. So I got like, Orion, high five. And that was just so awesome. What a great example. Well, Pastor Sean often makes an allusion to the concept of there, the word therefore. He tells us what it's there for. And the word for functions the same way. So in verse 17, we have that word for. For is better. We have a curious phrase here. If God should will it. This is to remind us that God is in complete control of everything. Everything that happens, including suffering. You know, the next time your world gets rocked, you know, so, someone throws a spanner in the works and or there's a health thing or, or whatever, instead of flying off the handle like I'm prone to do, it seems like sometimes, to step back and you go, okay, if God wills it. And if it happens, then God wills it. There's a purpose 
and a reason. You may not see it, but just be patient because the scripture tells us here, even suffering is brought into people's lives as part of his perfect plan. It's hard to understand. It's one of those landmines you can step on and get blown up. But it, it's, it's, it's there. And, and Jesus was the ultimate example of suffering. The most righteous person that ever lived, the only sinless person that ever lived, and yet he suffered on the cross. But he, he got great reward. In verse 22, we see that he was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, over angels and authorities. And his reward is our reward. His victory over, over the grave is victory for us over the grave for eternal life, which we've been celebrating already in our worship. And then we're going to look at something. He went and proclaimed it to an unusual group of people. Now you get to a part, part of the passage like this in verse 19 to 20, and most pastors um, very understandably just blow right over it because it's like, oh, that's kind of strange. What, what, what is that? And so we see in verse 19 and 20 that Jesus, after achieving his victory, he proclaimed it to the spirits now in prison. So what is that? So I'm going to tackle it. You might think I'm crazy, but the way Peter explains this, his audience had knowledge of this, um, which is the knowledge that we, I think, in, in a large history have kind of lost that part of our world history. He explains it also in verse in the second epistle, Second Peter, and the way he explains it again, it just he assumes that the readers have a knowledge of what happened. And Jude, the half brother of Jesus, he talks about the same thing in his 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 epistle, right before Revelation, and he quotes from another source, an apocryphal source named Enoch. And Enoch gives great description of what we call the antediluvial world. That's the world that occurred before the flood. So Genesis six, um, the first six verses explain that um, angels saw that the daughters of men, as they're described, looked really good. And there's this supposed, supposed to be impenetrable barrier between those two worlds. But they very egregiously sinned, broke that barrier, came down and had sexual relations with these, these ladies. And, and not only says that they, it wasn't an act of lust, there's something more to it because they took them as wives. So it's, it's been thought of that, that God you know, gave Adam and his, his, those after him dominion over the earth and some people think that these angels sin not just in lust but also wanted to kind of usurp the authority of the of man having dominion over the earth but it was a heinous sin and and the bible describes their offspring were the nephilim and and they're men of great size and it's all over the bible if you've never heard this before you go this is this is nuts but if you read the old testament again you realize there's nephilim uh the anak the anakim same thing uh, the Rephaim and the Eminem, Emem, they're all descendants from these fallen angels. And history, um, other historical sources, and you can see it in the Bible as well, because of their superior size and their superior knowledge, they began to dominate the earth. It's a fascinating study. It can be a real rabbit trail. Actually, it can become a real wormhole because it's so fascinating. So don't take my word for it. If they're going, Sellers has lost it. But just look into it. It's, it's kind of interesting, but it explains a lot. For one, it explains why God had to push the reset button on his creation, because that evil had overcome his creation so much that God had to hit the reset button and start over again. But think about Noah now, and this is partly why this is included in our passage, I believe, as well, because how long did it take Noah to build that ark? A hundred years. And so here he is, a righteous Noah with his righteous family, 
um, living in a very unrighteous world, doing righteousness, think about how hard that would have been for him for at least 100 years. And then there is the peril of surviving the flood. And just like Daniel, God was with him and protecting him. He was suffering, but God was keeping him and keeping him safe. And so I believe that partly that's in here, not just to show how Jesus proclaimed his victory to these spirits now in prison, waiting for final judgment, um, but to give us an example of a righteous, godly man that persevered with his righteousness in the face of an evil, evil place. So I want to end the message now by just telling a story. Because uh, as we face suffering for doing good, hopefully not doing bad, the promise is that God has a purpose, God has a plan. He plans for us, and it's a plan for others. Joseph Stalin was probably the most ruthless dictator in the history of our world. They estimate that 60 million people perished under his rule, whether it was um, famine, forced labor, uh, mass murder. That's like almost double the population of Canada that one person in his reign of terror was responsible for. Well, God used him. God used Joseph Stalin in the cause of Christ to bring salvation to an entire Muslim Uzbek and Kazakh region. Back in the 30s, there were thousands of Koreans that fled to Russia with uh, the Chinese invasion and then coming communism in North Korea now that we're not there. So they came to, to the Vladivostok region of Russia. But that's the area that Stalin wanted to have as the munitions kind of centered uh, leading into World War II. And so he viewed these Koreans as a security risk. So he exported them to five different places throughout the um, Soviet Union. And one of those places was the city of Tashkent. Tashkent is the capital now of Uzbekistan and kind of regional, like I say, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. And so these, these Koreans, they just kind of became part of society. And a lot of them came over as Christians. And not only were they already Christians, but then God began to move in this Korean um, community, and they became, they, they had like a great revival. And that revival spread out to the Muslim community. And this Muslim community, they had for hundreds of years strongly repelled Christian witness. And yet these Koreans were so industrious and hardworking and, and wonderful, godly, humble people that they accepted them. And um, they became part of that community and, and, and gospel began to spread. In the 1990s, then, there was the first open-air evangelistic event that went on there, and thousands of people came to Christ as a result of, of that of influence. So it was a costly strategy for many of those Koreans to, be, to suffer, to be supplanted from their home in Korea, and then Vladivostok, and then over to Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. And God was with them through their suffering, but God also loved the Muslim people as well. And so he used them in his sovereignty to make that happen. So like I said before, God gives each one of us assignments. And that assignment um, we need to faithfully carry out. We may not understand it, and he may use circumstances to make that circumstance, those assignments come true in our lives. And we just need to trust him and to love him and to follow him. Let me pray as I close here. Lord, I want to thank you so much for, for being with us 
every circumstance of suffering if it comes into our lives, help us to remain true to the gospel. And Lord, we just pray for the, the calamities that are going around the world right now. Right now, We've already prayed for Turkey, Syria, but we continue to pray for them. And in Hanafay, we have a connection to Turkey and Syria. And we just especially pray for that now. We also have a connection in the Ukraine in our church. So we pray for, for what's going on there. And Lord, I pray that our witness would remain strong for you, that we would you know, seek out good deeds and, and just seek out you with all of our hearts. Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. We're going to transition into a time of communion. Usher, could you pass out the So there's three things that we should do when it comes to communion. There's the three R's. Reflect, repent, and rejoice. And you know, um, we get to do this together. We celebrate um, these three things together. And the first one I want to do is just read 1 Corinthians 11, which a lot of... Um, Communion services are part of read here. Let me just read it now as we reflect on this. For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, and remember me. So I'd just like for us to take a, some moments of silence and reflect on the tremendous gift that Jesus has given to us. The next aspect is mentioned in 1 Corinthians. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup, lest they do so in an unworthy manner. Let's just take a few moments of silence as well and, and just uh, see if there might be anything in our hearts that we need to repent and make right with the Lord. First Peter says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Let's partake together to celebrate that. Well, the third R is to rejoice. So Arnie, can you come and lead us as we rejoice and celebrate? <laughs> 